Hello there. We're trying to keep Coral Chihuahua going, and so we draw your attention to the possibility of listening to us on Patreon for just a few quid a month. This also magically gets rid of the ads. That's Patreon with an E, patreon.com forward slash Coral Chihuahua. On with the app. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back to Coral Chihuahua. <laughs> cool suspension. I'm Harry Christophers, founder and director of The Sixteen. And I'm Eamon Dugan, associate conductor of The Sixteen. And today we're chuffed a bits to be joined by a very dear friend of ours who also just happens to be one of the finest composers in the world today. And in my opinion, I expect Eamon will agree to me, with me, uh, the greatest composer of sacred music about. Now, I'd actually put him in the same breath as Thomas Louis de Victoria and Francis Poulenc for someone who not only puts his personal stamp on sacred texts, but also has an unmistakable voice. And here he is, Sir James McMillan. Welcome, James. Hello there. What an introduction. <laughs> it's our pleasure. Now, now both Eamon and I are down in the south of England. I'm, in, I'm just on the North Downs in Kent and, and Eamon's down in the depths of Sussex. And uh, I think you're a few miles north of us. I'm at home here in North Ayrshire, um, and it, we've had some great weather. It's been a wonderful May and June, and it's been the weather has been quite uh, some compensation for the strange predicament that we all find ourselves in. Yeah. Now you've often mentioned to both of us about the wonderful view you have from your working room. What does it? What does it actually look like? Tell us about it. Right. Well, out of the uh, main window, I can look over, <clears throat> and it's quite a clear day today. I can see, and I can see the hills of Arran, the island of Arran, uh, which is a few miles away uh, in the Firth of Clyde. Uh, I, I can I also see a little bit of the island of Cumbre, a little bit of the sea. Although we're we're three miles from the coast here, uh, up on a hill in splen splendid isolation, of no no neighbours apart from some sheep and some roe deer and some quite angry crows and squirrels that come and visit us sometimes. Look, I think this is a marvellous cue for the first bit of music we're going to play, so let's just hear it.
Oh, just beautiful. That's the opening of the um, your setting of the Gallant Weaver, beautiful Robbie Burns poem. Now, actually, Eamon, I think this piece is pretty special to you, isn't it? Yeah, it holds a very dear place in my heart. We had that sung at our wedding uh, some yeah, 13 oh. years ago now. Yeah, signing of the register. Not a dry eye in the house. That's what's amazing about your music, actually, Jimmy, is because there's there's not a dry eye in the house. So many of the texts, um, and it's the emotion you get through. I mean, I was just actually thinking about um, all the music you've composed, and just how much in the choral music you you sort of are influenced by music from the Renaissance. There was a, there was a lovely bit in your book, by the way. James has written a wonderful book called A Scots Song, A Life of Music. Uh, you should get it if you've, if you've not read it already. Um, but you talk about uh, your wonderful uh, relationship with Maxwell Davis and how Max used to have a, the Liber Usualis, that big book of plain song, on his desk uh, every day and used to look at it. And so, you know, how much have, have you been influenced by it all? Oh, very much so. Um... Uh, I don't quite have the Liber Usualis in my study, but I think I've got a Graduale somewhere. And um, I'm steeped in that music. I mean, ever since I was a, a rather weedy tenor at school here in Ayrshire, I've, I've loved singing in choirs and, uh, and, and more recently writing for choirs. And um, the, the music that we sang at school and all through university was the, the music, of course, that the 16 know and perform so much, uh, music from the Renaissance and... Um, I, I got to know the work of Palestrina and the great English contrapuntalists like Talis and, and and William Byrd and others. And in a sense, I, I've been steeped in that world. And when I came to uh, develop my own choral writing uh, in quite intricate ways in the last 20 years or so, it's to that tradition that I turned. Um, and I can feel the, the ghosts of... Uh, uh, in English choral composers from the past uh, surging through a lot of a right, and of course at the at the at the the base of this is uh, a, a, an awareness of plain song, awareness of Gregorian chant, and and how that the chant can be uh, incorporated into the music both back then and now as a kind of DNA music that uh, is a kind of perfect monodic form that uh, can still inform. Uh, music that's written today, and, and Maxwell Davis was very much aware of that, although his music was very different from mine. I think that's really interesting to listen to, Jimmy, because you speak a lot there about singing this music uh, as a youngster, and, and you know, then when you got to university. From my point of view, it's so clear to me that that you are a singer, and that you have been a singer, and that I think that comes across so clearly uh, in in your choral writing not only in the sort of practical sense that you, you know how to write for voices, you understand vocal ranges and what voices can and can't do. But I think your your gift for, for writing melody uh, is something that it feels like it could absolutely stem from that experience of, of learning plain chant at a young age. Yes. Um, I mean, I uh, as I say, uh, there is a kind of perfection about the melodic um, element of Gregorian chant. Uh, and it's no surprise to me that uh, it's it's attracted a, a huge interest and new popularity in the secular world. Um, it's not just the churches that use it, but you know people uh, in, that listen to classic FM or uh, want to chill out in some way, not for not for necessarily religious reasons, but have uh, found it I found it a, a great source of solace and beauty and um, and peace. 
And uh, I, I can understand that. Uh, there's something about this music that is perfect, and uh, it's no surprise that it has become such a, a core unit in Western music uh, in the past and the present. Jimmy, do you feel like the way you approach writing melody has changed at all over the past 20 years or so? Well, my approach to choral music has changed. Um, when I was a, a young composer in my 20s and you know, learning the craft of, uh, and trying to absorb, absorb as much modern music as possible, um, the, the, the bulk of that engagement was with instrumental music. It was, it was the modernist thing. It was the modernist way. Uh, modernism is a kind of instrumental form, if you like. Um, we wanted to write the next great virtuosic work for solo players, and we, we looked to the likes of Luciano Berrio, who wrote those incredible sequences for solo performers. But if you look at his uh, solo vocal music, or his vocal music generally, or indeed a lot of vocal music from the 20th century, that music is uh, shaped by an engagement with instrumental music. It's almost as if the composers are trying to make instrumental music for voices. And um, I think there has been a, a reflection in that in recent years, wondering whether that was the right way to go with, with the voice and, and certainly choral voices um, and a reassessment of um, what makes a choir a choir uh, and what, what even in modernity choirs can do and how they can sound. And, and um, that allied with the fact that we've, we've kind of freed up our attitudes to tradition and the deep past from a time that, that we were trying to turn our back on the deep past and tradition and history, musical history, to a time where we're much more comfortable with the deep past and we want to re-engage with it, to embrace it in a way, not in a reactionary, old-fashioned, conservative way, but in a way that um, respects the past and allows it to flower and, and blossom in their own time. I think one, I'd like to pick up on something Eamon actually said uh, earlier, which was about uh, your your ranges. You think very much about the vocal ranges of, of our singers. And as Eamon said, Jimmy, you write such fantastic melodies for us. But I remember when we, the first piece we ever commissioned from you, which was back in uh, 2001, which which was O Bona Jesu, um, beautiful text which Robert Carver had written, of course, in the in the fifteen hundreds, um, mm. and I remember we, we had a chat about vocal ranges. You know, you asked about the mm. the, the makeup of the choir, and I remember saying that, look, what I what I, the things that I hated were having the basses on bottom C's singing fortissimos and the sopranos on top C's singing pianissimo, and there's one <laughs> bit in O Bona Jesu um, which is just amazing because you have this enormous crescendo it seems to start very low down in the in the basses but I, I just look at the copy the other day it's only a b uh it's not no mm -hmm. not, not the one below bottom d it's only a b and it goes up to only something like an e or f sharp in the sopranos but you get the mm -hmm. sense of this incredible crescendo coming from the depths of the voices and up and it's well amen it's um, first of all it's amazing to sing isn't it absolutely staggering you know that piece was my first ever experience of Jimmy's music, I'd never, I'd never come across it before, and I remember, you know, this sort of visceral reaction to it. It's great. Let's let's hear it. Let's hear a bit.
It's beautiful. I, I mean, there are something like 20 evocations of the word Jesus in that, Jesus in that, which is just amazing every time. Um, really gorgeous. And that sighing motif you have makers do early on, it, that's a, a great effect, Jimmy. Thank you. Yes, I remember um, the advice that you gave me in those early days about range. It was very much taken to heart, <laughs> and uh, I like to, I like, to, I like to stick with it. Although I have a natural instinctive attraction towards extremes, and I've got to watch that because I do like the sound of sopranos hitting top seas now, <laughs> now and again. <laughs> and there's something about those those very low bass notes that make marvellous uh, drones. Um, but but you're right, you've got to be very careful and uh, cautious with that and only keep them for uh, special moments. I think we can tell, Jimmy, that we've been working together for a number of years now because <laughs> in the pieces that you've written for us more recently, I can feel those extremes starting to be pressed uh, a little further <laughs> out each time. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, sopranos, <laughs> right. the Sopranos have had words with you already about having high, yeah. Jimmy. Oh, yeah, that's right. And uh, again, I've, I've taken it to heart. And uh, I know that some of, some of the Sopranos don't like the, the closed mouth thing that I do very high in their voices. So I'm trying to rein in that side of me as well. Now, there's a lovely... Now, I've, I've just, I was reading your book again the other day, and there's a lovely quote in it. It says, And there is something else that we Brits do that many mainland European composers can't get their heads around. We write serious music for amateurs as well as professionals. From Vaughan Williams and Holst to Britain, Tiffin and Maxwell Davis, we have valued the role of the non-specialist in the nation's musical life. So that's something I want to come on to because we, we mentioned Max or Davis earlier on. And uh, of course, some years ago, um, at 16, we had the pleasure of going to um, Orkney to the St. Magnus Festival and it was incredible. But what was incredible was this feeling of community and on just, you know, a a bare Scottish island. It was fantastic. And of course, mm. you're doing something in, in abs so similar at, at Cumnock. And, uh, yes. Well, I mean, it was uh, Maxwell Davis that, that inspired me uh, to set up my own festival. I remember going up to Orkney as an undergraduate uh, and seeing some of the early uh, St Magnus festivals in the 1980s and, and was really overawed by what I encountered there. Uh, these great musicians coming from all over the country and internationally, playing in little halls and churches and Stromness and Kirkwall uh, and out in the islands. Uh, and yet the, the festival was absolutely plugged in to the community. There was a sense of ownership um, um, that the people of Orkney had for the St Magnus Festival, uh, not just in the way that they were the audience, the prime audience, but they they would be volunteers and uh, they they would become performers themselves. And and Max would write for them. He would write work for the local schools. I saw the world premiere of his children's opera Cinderella, which he had written for Kirkwall Grammar School, and um, and of course this has been carried on from. Uh, Benjamin Britten, who did the same thing uh, at Alborough, maybe a generation before. And um, I suppose indirectly, the, the Britten-Alborough thing was also a, an inspiration for me. And I always wondered if one day I would do something similar. Uh, and that's exactly what's happened. I've set up my own festival in the town where I grew up, little town in East Ayrshire, Cumnock. And um, I'm trying something similar there. And um, um, the, the people in Cumnock have... Uh, 
um, taken the, the festival, we call it the Come Up Trist, uh, to their hearts. And uh, we've, got, we've got a festival chorus which performs every year, conducted by Eamon. Um, I, I, you know, I've written music for them, and Eamon gave the very first performance of All the Hills and Vales along a few, a few years ago with the chorus and with starry soloists like Ian Bostridge, who came and sang this, the tenor solo part, and we had the Edinburgh Quartet, and the local brass band from Domellington. So, I mean, I, I le- I've learned a lot from Max and indirectly Benjamin Britten about how that ecology, you know, that linking of the, the great world-class uh, professional musicians, um, how they link with local communities and how they can be made to work together, as I say, sometimes in the same piece of music, sometimes in the same musical space. It's a very inspiring thing to do. And... Um, uh, I, I, we, we, I mean, obviously, this pandemic has uh, curtailed many of our plans, but um, I think it's made a lot of us think about the British experience. Um, that the, not just the British composer, but the the British musician does value his or her place in a community and can work best, perhaps, with with communities like the, uh, like those in Orkney or Alborough or Cumnock and, and and many many other places now. And Eamon, you've, you've, as Jimmy just said, you've been doing the uh, the chorus up there, and and you must have a, a, a wide variety of, of of sort of singers there and and talent and people who people who have very limited experience of singing to those who are singing quite a lot. Yeah, that's right. It, I mean, it came about from the very first year of the Cumberland Trice, where um, Jimmy asked me to come and do a, a come and sing day. We had a big turnout, and it was so good that I just said to him at the end of at the end of the day, I said, look this is a ready-made festival chorus. Why don't we see if we can, if we can bring, this, bring this on? And I feel each year it's grown. Um, there is a wide range of, uh, of abilities, um, but it doesn't seem to matter, actually. Um, the, I think there's such a, an emotional investment from the singers uh, and a real pride that, uh, that Jimmy is a local boy and, uh, and everything that he's achieved. And then, honestly, when we did All the Hills and Vales along, it was it was one of the most exhilarating experiences or performances that I've ever been part of because it was written for the people from from this town and you could really feel the sense of of ownership and the pride and the, and the thrill that that gave them it was quite something. Um, we've got a wonderful uh, chorus master, Andy McTaggart, uh, and he is well connected in Scotland, and he uh, uh, so he helps sort of draw it all together. Uh, and we do a, a kind of tag team over the course of the year. So if Andy's listening to this, hi, Andy. <laughs> yeah, he's great to have around. Andy's a, a, a wonderful singer and, and choir man. And uh, as Eamon says, has indicated, the choir is completely non-auditioned. So we, we just take we take the first 80 people who sign up, as long as the balance is right. And that's the tricky thing, uh, getting tenors and basses. But um, it seems to work. I mean, there are people who have not sung music of this nature or um, uh, um, complexity before, but they seem to be carried along by those who have. Um, and and so the, the more experienced ones help the more inexperienced ones. It's amazing, actually, because has that, with the Cumnock Trist, has that sort of worked its way into the, uh, you know, the, the junior schools and the primary school and the secondary schools? And, and has that sort of invigorated the music there? 
It certainly has. I mean, I, I went to school in Cumnock. Uh, I remember Cumnock and its young uh, students as, as a very mu musical. I remember it's a very musical place and a, a very musical community. And I just knew that the, the festival would work there. Um, it's an area of multiple deprivation, as, as many people know. Ayrshire, East Ayrshire has been hit hard over the last few decades, and it's perhaps not the area that people imagine can hold uh, and sustain a, a, a really high-class music festival. But I knew I knew I could prove those people wrong. Uh, I knew it would work, and um, and so it has proved. And the schools are very well signed up to it. We work in the, some of the local primary schools where there's a kind of El Sistema type uh, approach to string teaching. So we've got some little string players involved uh, from the area and some of them are bell ringers and some of them sing. So I write, write little pieces uh, uh, for the young string players, uh, get them involved in uh, a, a big concert every year at the, the Trist. Uh, where, where, they, where they themselves can sometimes write the music and we encourage young composers, um, e even at secondary school, even at primary school, uh, to make their own music. And that's been feeding through and we're encouraging uh, a new generation of uh, Ayrshire-based composers, including including a wonderful young composer called Jay Caporal, yeah. Caporal who, uh, who wrote a piece for the chorus and Eamon conducted the premiere of that uh, last year. It's fantastic, actually. I mean, and, and, and your music, of course, always has, there's, there's always this feeling of Scottish tradition behind it. Um, I mean, the title of your book, I go back to your wonderful book, A Scots Song. And we're now going to hear a little bit of the actual Scots song, which actually I noticed you, you wrote for Mary Wygod and John Waldrich. And of course, I actually used to sing years ago in my singing days with Mary. So it's, it's nice to hear this. Now that tune, I know that means a lot to you, Jimmy. I mean, it's, it's the title of the, your book. It's the song you use a lot. You use it in the St Anne's Mass, the Congregational Mass, which is just fantastic. And of course, you use it in another piece you wrote for us, um, which is probably, well, I, I think it's probably your most famous uh, a cappella uh, sacred work, um, and that's Ambisereri. We've toured it all over the world and it's a piece wherever we go and it doesn't matter what else is in the program there could be palestrina allegra's miserere in the program everywhere we go it's your piece the audience come out talking about because it just it 
gets it digs deep i remember you you started with the tenors and basses and it, you just say desolate i think at the beginning and that puts the fear of god of them straight away and, they, <laughs> and uh, but but if they do sing it in this stark way it's amazing it's bare and then my goodness me that there are moments in it which just stretch the dynamics to the nth degree i mean a amen uh, you, uh, you must just tell Jimmy, that when the basses go high at the very end, Robin McDonald, pure genius at that point. It's it's like he's going to take off every time. But it's you know it's the emotional impact of that moment where the tune comes back and then you take the basses up to the up to the top. E. I think you know there's only one way to do it, and I think everyone is so committed at that point. It's yeah, it's, it's you just feel there's this great sincerity uh, in your music, and yet. You know, as I said, there's, it's got this incredible emotional depth to it, and yet it's only in four parts. And I think that's the sign of a of a really good composer who, you know, doesn't need lots uh, lots of parts or lots of ex you know, it doesn't need to be on a grand scale in order to really uh, carry the carry the listener, you know, to the heart of the music and what it's getting at. It was amazing, actually, because it was commissioned by a, a festival in Belgium, and and uh, when when the score came through to me and, and Jimmy and your your wonderfully spidery script, um, I, I got the thrill of my life when I opened it and saw that you dedicated it to me, and that was oh, just so moving. But then, you know, I was working at it, I was looking through it, and I, just, I thought, gosh, this is wonderful, Jimmy's. And then I got to this bit which looked like a faux bourdon, um, you know, just for, for the, the voices singing plain song for parts. And I thought. Oh, Jimmy's run out of ideas, and uh, and then we start rehearsing, and we put it together, and it's uh, I, I, the words of Arvo Peck came to me and said, "You've just got to get in to find a way into my music and realize why it's there," and suddenly, of course, it's all part of this fantastic piece. It's such a special moment, this little hint to Allegri, this the old world, and then you go into this uh, uh, amazing ending. We're just going to, I think we're, I think we're going to hear the very close of it now. Oh, wow. It's unmistakably you, Jimmy. I mean, as I said at the beginning, you, you put your own personal stamp onto sacred texts, you know, saying, you know, this is what I'm believing at this point. I mean, 
how do you do it? I mean, that that is even just turning that little excerpt. I think Amy will agree with me. It is absolutely gut churning. It is, you know, I'm, I'm I've all, I've tensed all up. I need to relax. <laughs> well, it's interesting what you say about that melody. It has become a kind of e-day fix for me through the years. I've been asked about many times about why it's there and why why I use it and. It, there's, I can't quite answer the question, but there is something about the melody which just seems to exert its own necessity at given points. As you say, I used it in the in a St Anne's Mass setting as well, especially in the in the setting of the Sanctus, uh, which means holy, holy. And there's something I think about sanctity or holiness uh, that, in my mind, I associate with that um, setting and that melody, and it crops up at moments like that where 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 there's a where sanctity or holiness needs to be evoked in some of the choral music. So at that point in the Miserere, um, um, where the great sacrifice uh, 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 of the psalmist is being talked about, and uh, it, it crops up at, at the end of my St John Passion, um, uh, where, there's, where, where holiness is being evoked again. So there's a kind of psychological nudge happens in my own working life that says ah it's time for that melody again <laughs> and uh, I don't know I might use it again although um, uh, Lynn says uh, my wife says that you're not going to use that tune again I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah but it's interesting also Harry what you say about what music looks like and uh, and the difference sometimes about how it sounds there is I get this from a lot of composers that I work with um who have been told by their teachers and by people who are deciding on prizes for composers and so on that, um, that, that, that they sometimes their music is overlooked because, and this is a quote that some of them get, it doesn't look good on paper. Uh, and I think there is, a, there is a strain in modernism that values visual complexity. And if it doesn't look black and um, uh, teeming with... Um, uh, virtuosic uh, difficulties it's not worthwhile uh, there is that strain in modernism and of course with choral music uh, you you fast realize that uh, it does choirs and voices don't need those high jinks and um, uh, acrobatics to really communicate profundity communicate emotion and meaning and and feeling uh, it can be uh, a drone or it can be a, a chord or a, a very a, a, the slightest little fragment of melody that can communicate the, the most uh, powerful thing, and that's a huge hurdle I think for composers to get over, uh, to forget about the old uh, lessons about uh, how how it looks on the page and remember how the music sounds. Yeah, I remember Benjamin Britten writing once about uh, you know how he would often revisit something because the the, the what the effects he he was trying to achieve could actually be achieved in a simpler way, and I remember him writing that um, a boy was born, which he wrote quite young in his life. That actually it was it was too complex, and that he I think he always wished that he could have rewritten bits of it, which is really interesting. And I because mm. that brings me on actually to I mean, Eamon, both Eamon and I have been involved with Genesis sixteen for for of course since its inception, and a few years ago we we did a. a a Stab at Marta project where we had three young composers and we had you come down mentoring them. And I thought that was fascinating for them. I mean, it was great that they actually allowed themselves to be used as sort of guinea pigs uh, and, and their music dissected and for Genesis 16 to see how this 
music worked for singers. And we had some fascinating insights. And there was one thing I remember you mentioning quite a lot of times to them was that don't fill your score with too much information. Yeah, that's right. And and uh, and that can work in a number of different ways. Sometimes composers want to write as much uh, as you know, lots of instructions, especially in Italian, which is a great language, very expressive language. Um, but sometimes the, 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 the notes and nothing but the notes is all that is required uh, to communicate uh, what is necessary uh, for the music to take off. Yeah, and an idea. I mean, just as you do the start of the Miserere, you say desolate. Well, that tells yeah. everything. <laughs> yeah. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Jimmy, can I just ask you about um, contemporary choral music? Obviously, you're at the, the vanguard of that. Um, this is something that Harry and I discuss quite often is how uh, there's an awful lot of music, uh, choral music being written nowadays, which is, it just seems to be just lovely chords. Uh, and there's a real lack of, of counterpoint. And, you know, to quote Britain again, I, I think it was um, Ollie Nusson who he was in chatting with when Ollie Nusson was, a, was a, young, a young lad. And Britain asked him, he said, you know, does your teacher teach you counterpoint? And Nelson said, oh, yes, he does. He said, well, that's great, because harmony is counterpoint, or counterpoint is harmony. And, uh, you know, there's there's plenty of counterpoint in, in your music. Do you feel that that's something which is missing, maybe, in, in, in choral music today? Uh, yes. Uh, um, 
I mean, you raise a number of issues there about the teaching of counterpoint, for example. Um, it's, it's beginning to disappear from university and college um, courses, which is a great shame. I, I mean, when I was a, when I was a student of Kenneth Layton in Edinburgh, who was a great teacher, he was always stressing the importance of counterpoint, and um, you know, I'd, I'd learn, I learned my species counterpoint, Palestrina pastiche from from him and uh, we studied Bach um, fugal technique uh, and uh, we, we went into it in, in a big way and I think a lot of students both then and, and now maybe regarded it as a pointless exercise and, and I suppose if you're not going to be a composer it might appear that way but I think for a composer it's absolutely vital that you get to grips with these very complex designs from the past and uh, you know these composers like Palestrina that we've talked about, and Talas and, and Bach, and the great contrapuntalists of the past, um, are indeed uh, or can be the great teachers of contemporary composers today, because they teach us how to handle complexity. Uh, yes, for them it was line against line, melody against melody, um, but they they teach us also about concepts, bigger concepts uh, for for modernity. Uh, tonality against tonality, rhythm against rhythm, and how that can be heard without um, without the music becoming chaotic. And uh, so the, 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 the engagement with counterpoint, I think, is absolutely vital for a composer. And uh, if, if it's not there, if that counterpoint, that complexity, that detail of line and, um, and, the, and the all the different elements, if they're not heard as constituent elements, then the music can become mushy. Um, and uh, I, I can understand there's, a, there's a, an instinct among some composers to go for a, a, a kind of emotional rush, uh, like a sugar rush, uh, and they can get that in choral music by smudging some nice chords together. But But it does leave you feeling rather flat in the end. I think I know what you mean. Yes, yeah, certainly does. Um, I, I think there's, I mean, also, I mean, there's no harm in challenging uh, performers. And I think you very much do challenge singers and instrumentalists, but you know, and, and in a very good way, because, of course, we're always wanting to get better and get, get more accomplished at things. And, of course, I mean, it's, this leads me on to, you know, two phenomenal works in a span of 20 years. Um, your Seven Last Words, and you wrote that in uh, 1994, in fact. And I, I, sadly, I didn't get to conduct that in 1994. There was, um, I remember Boosie and Hawks uh, approached the 16 and we were uh, con under contract to a record company. And I think you were with another record company and we, the two didn't, wouldn't agree. But anyway, um, I know you, you know, of course, you've conducted it many times yourself, Jibby. And, and Eamon, you, of course, did it for Jibby in uh, in the Consac about some years ago. We, we reckoned about 15 years ago, didn't we? Uh, it was it was your 50th birthday celebrations, Jibby. That's right. And I I conducted a, a concert, uh, a sort of matinee concert, in which we sang Obone Jesu and the, alongside the Carver setting uh, and various other works of yours. And then uh, and then you conducted the Seven Last Words uh, in later on in the afternoon. Yeah, I remember it very well. It was a, a wonderful uh, event. And um, I remember the, the Dutch audience being absolutely spellbound uh, at, at the 16. Um, they, 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 they're a great, they have great audiences in Holland uh, and they really appreciate the best musicians and they know that there's something special about the, the British choir. 
it's an incredible work, Jimmy. I mean, absolutely phenomenal. And of course, that led on to really our, our relationship with uh, John Sadinsky and the Genesis Foundation, which has been absolutely staggering, I think, for, for both of us. Um, and uh, the Stab at Marta came out of uh, a conversation with John. Uh, John Sadinsky phoned me up. He was in the Salzburg Festival. Uh, he'd just come out of listening to a performance of Rossini's Stab at Marta, and he phoned me up straight away. I think I was on the beach in Portugal, you know, and the mobile phone goes, and it's John. You have to answer it. Just doesn't know where you are. And uh, he just said, you know, this is, this is, you know, it's, it's, I don't know if he used the word trite, but anyway, he didn't enjoy the piece at all and said that, you know, there has to be a new rendition. And I remember saying to him, well, there's only one person that can do this, and it's got to be James Macmillan. And, of course, you then produced this 60-minute Stab at Marta, the, the, I think the largest scale Stab at Marta that, that has ever been written. Uh, I mean, it's 20 stanzas long, the actual poem. You divided that into four movements of five stanzas. And, oh, my goodness me, uh, just incredible i mean can you just can you i mean the listeners listeners to coral chihuahua will probably have heard the work but can you give us an insight into how you write something like this how you write something that just digs so deep is almost cinematic sometimes but then never losing sight of a of, of a spiritual meaning and a, a meaning to us in the present day well, um, I mean, it's a text I've lived with uh, since I was a little boy. I remember uh, at school singing an English version, an English language version of it uh, in a kind of flowery uh, Victorian hymn form. But I remember the, the, the words were very affecting. And it's, if you, growing up a Catholic, it's, it's the kind of text you kind of live with every, uh, every um, passion tide, as it were. And um, the, the, I, I, I've been, visiting revisiting these days in history in, in some very different ways all through my life i've written to actual passion settings so far a saint john and a saint luke um and the seven last words that you were talking about is another way of telling the same story uh but in a very different form and the stab at matter <clears throat> is the same story again but seen through mary's eyes and perhaps it's because it's a very human response uh, it's a, a mother's grief um that there's something very affecting about the poem and it has has touched people regardless of their uh, religious experience and worldview um through some wonderful settings through the ages and uh, it was a great opportunity for me uh, when uh, John and yourself suggested it. Um, I suppose I had been, I'd been waiting to to write my own stab at matter for many years, and um, with it goes an, my own experience of liturgy, and I, I know what liturgy is and uh, how it can exert its influence in music. But uh, as you quite rightly say, there's a, a human drama uh, at work there, so you, it touches something deep in all of us, and so there's a very complex reaction. Uh, by listeners and indeed the composers themselves uh, to this beautiful text. Um, and uh, now I remember enjoying the, the opportunity of putting these two ensembles together, the two exact two ensembles, if you like, uh, that, that are used in Seven Last Words, that is a choir and a, a, a string orchestra. And for some reason, uh, those two almost monochrome worlds, if you like, join together to make a uh, an amazing synthesis, and I, I certainly love the sound of uh, that kind of British sound world uh, and, and a string orchestra playing together. Yeah, let's hear the um, a bit of the first movement of Stabat Mater. Mm -hmm. 
The hairs on the back of my neck are standing up. I think it's um, it's it's a, a symptom of being in the midst of this pandemic at the moment and not having sung anything with with anyone else for for such a long time. Uh, the memories of, of performing that piece are flooding through my head. Both the the premiere of it at the Barbican, but also when we had the extraordinary experience of uh, of performing it in the Sistine Chapel. Um, yeah, I can see the frescoes really clearly in my mind's eye. Um, Jimmy, I know you, you've mentioned to me when we've been chatting recently that this has been a, a productive time for you um, while we've been in this lockdown. Um, you've got exciting projects coming up in the in the future when we when we do get back. Yes, uh, it's it's, a, it's been a very strange experience in some ways. Um, uh, on one level, uh, life for me has gone on as normal. You know, I spend a lot of time on my own. Uh, in silence, uh, in isolation, as it were, uh, and I just got on with the day job, but in a very intense way. And it's uh, obviously a lot of my other work, as you as you're aware, uh, like your work has stopped uh, the performances and so on. Um, uh, but for me, as a composer, it's allowed me to uh, uh, dig deep. Uh, and I've written a, an awful lot of music since the, the beginning of the, the year, in fact. I finished a Christmas oratorio, uh, which is a big piece for for choir and orchestra and, and a couple of soloists. Um, I've written another oratorio for America, 
which is a setting of a poem by Dana Joya, the, the American poet. Again, choir, orchestra, and two soloists. That's a little shorter, half an hour. But at the moment, I'm working on a big piece for choir uh, for a, a German radio station. Um, and it's it, it might have a kind of theatrical element. Um, uh, it's a setting of a te text by Hildegard of, of Bingen in Latin, uh, Ordo Virtutum, um, or, or Order of the Virtues. It's a kind of uh, liturgical drama, as it were, uh, and, and there are concepts uh, that come forward almost like people and sing. Uh, so the music swings back between uh, two choirs and, and then some soloists. But I managed to persuade the commissioners to let me put one percussionist in as an accompaniment because one hour of through composed choral music, as you're as you are very aware, gentlemen, is quite be, might be quite difficult to maintain the pitch. So they've allowed me allowed me to use a vibraphone, uh, which comes to the floor now and again just to help out in a practical way. But but you're right. There's there's a very wistful feeling about writing all this music, wondering where and when this music will be performed, because I think we know that musicians who work with their mouths, whether they're wind players or singers, will be the ones that will go back last. So it's uh, it's in the hope that uh, the music will be performed, but there might be a bit of a delay. And certainly, um, um, premieres have premier dates are coming and going at the moment, and. Uh, talking about postponements of lots of things, but we we live in hope in it, and and I'm sure we'll all get back to work uh, and the joy of making music sooner rather than later. I'm sure we will, and actually we just can't wait, and and certainly can't wait to be performing more of your music, Jimmy. Um, it's been so much part of the Sixteen's life over the last uh, twenty twenty years now, and. Uh, and the relationship's still going to carry on. Uh, we've already got a, um, a text out to you at the moment, and uh, we're so looking forward to receiving that. Um, it's lovely chatting to you both, um, but we're now reaching the end of this episode of Coral Chihuahua. Cool suspension. You can find us on uh, your podcast networks or via our respective websites. That's www.the16.com and www.efagellini.com. Now, guys, we're going to close with an excerpt, Jimmy, of uh, something that I had the honour of conducting last year, the premiere of your Fifth Symphony, Le Grand Inconnu, at the Edinburgh Festival. Um, my goodness me, um, the 16, Genesis, so 16 or 18 voices, Genesis 16, 40 voices, and an orchestra replete with full brass, massive percussion, uh, piano, harp, uh, just a monumental piece. And we're going to close with the uh, end of the third movement. Yes, it's great to chat with you both, and I look forward to seeing you again and, and hearing you again. <laughs>
Coral Chihuahua is brought to you by Eva Cellini and the Sixteen and produced by Perseus, the Sixteen and Polyphonic Films. It's supported using public funding by the National Lottery through Arts Council England and this episode was further sponsored by Maurice Parry Wingfield. If you'd like to sponsor an episode, please contact us through either ensemble. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Just before you go, another reminder to try listening on Patreon, which costs just a few pounds per month. Or, if you prefer, you can very simply make a one-off donation. You can actually do either via coralchihuahua.com. Thanks.